It's a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to you for so many things that you give us. We're grateful because you are so bountiful in your giving. But we're grateful as well because we recognize that everything that we receive comes through your mercy and grace. That we have nothing that we can barter with you for, that we have no power of negotiation, and certainly nothing to offer you in return. Therefore, we see that the blessings we enjoy in this world, from the most trivial in human terms to the most outstanding eternal blessing of eternal life, comes because you love us in your Son. You love us for the sake of your Son. We thank you for his life, for his righteousness. We thank you for his perfect obedience to your law and for his willingness to go to the cross for us. We do ask that you would increase our love for him tonight and that you'd help us to understand better the nature of the salvation that he has brought us, that we would better represent what your people are to be on earth, that we'd live up to those covenant obligations that you've laid upon us. We pray that you would bless the church, that you would do so uh, everywhere where the true expression of your church is found. We pray for the church in our country and for our denomination, and most particularly tonight, Father, we ask for our own congregation here locally, that you might bless us and great, give us a greater sense of fervency in following our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the word that he has given us and pray that you, by your spirit, would bless our study of it, for we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in Hebrews, the third chapter, and I would like to read the entire chapter and remind you that we have studied the first three verses already. We're going to begin with the fourth verse this evening. So here now God's word of Hebrews 3.1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, even Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also was Moses in all his house. For he hath been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by so much as he that built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by someone, but he that built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken. But Christ as the Son over his house, Whose house are we, if we hold fast our boldness and the glorying of our hope firm unto the end? Wherefore, even as the Holy Spirit saith, Today, if ye shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, like as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by proving me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was displeased with this generation and said, they do always err in their heart, but they do not know my ways. As I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest aptly there shall be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. But exhort one another day by day, so long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we are become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. While it is said, 
Today, if you shall hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation. For who, when they heard, did provoke? Nay, did not all they that came out of Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he displeased forty years? Was it not with them that sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that were disobedient? And we see that they were not able to enter in because of unbelief. And that's far God's word. All right, in verses 1, 2, and 3, um, we've seen a lot of theology already, and I have to be careful in reviewing it, not to get bogged down in it, but you need to see the context as we pick up at verse 4. The author, again, uses this word therefore or wherefore. He's picking up from his previous argument. He addresses these people as brothers who are holy, set apart, and consecrated to God. He says that they partake of a calling that comes from heaven, and bids them to heaven. And what they are to do is to consider, they are to think about these things. And I'd ask you a question just to answer in your own hearts. Since our last Bible study, how much meditation have you given to the apostle and high priest of our confession? The author says you should do that. Consider it. Think about that. Meditate on that. That Christ is the original apostle. He's the source of all apostolic authority. He's also the high priest who is confessed in our confession of faith. Now, Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him, even as Moses was faithful in all of his house or the sphere of his influence and stewardship. However, Jesus is superior to Moses, and that's the point of the author here. He's encountered worthy of more glory than Moses because the one who builds the house has more honor than the house itself. And we talked about dispensationalism in particular and how it cannot handle this outlook because Moses and Jesus are put within the same household, within the same dispensation, in a sense. Moses is considered part of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. And now in verse 4, we read, Every house is builded by someone, but he that built all things is God. God is the creator of all things both spiritual and physical things. Everything that exists has come from nothing by the almighty power of God. He's constructed the totality of the universe. And so the next time someone asks you, well, how can you prove the doctrine of creation or creation ex nihilo? This is one of those verses that's a convenient proof text. The builder of all things is God. So you can't suggest that there was something around ahead of time by which God fashioned the universe because even it had to be built, first of all, by him. There are a number of implications that follow from the doctrine of creation. I trust everyone in this room already is aware of that. In the first place, we believe that all men are answerable to God because he's the creator. We believe that God is sovereign over everything. There's no power in the universe he hasn't made, so there's no power in the universe that can be greater than him. If God is the creator, then he is the ultimate judge of all men, and he's the sovereign governor and controller of all things. Moreover, if he made all things, then all things are good, unless they are perverted. That all evil in this world is not a matter of the nature of something. For instance, the uh, physical body is not evil in itself. But the physical body can be perverted. It can be used to an evil end to rebel against God. But everything God made is good. 
How about Satan? Is Satan good? Yes, yeah, Satan was made good. But he is he uses his free will, has used his free will, in a perverted way. He's turned against God and rebelled against him. So we believe uh, you see this affects our ethical outlook. Our approach to life as reformed Christians who believe the doctrine of creation is much different than many of the pagan religions that have areas of taboo, you know, or areas of evil or darkness in the world, or, you know, uh, they have conflicting ultimate forces, forces of good and forces of evil. Since we believe God is the ultimate and only true judge and creator, and he made all things good, our approach to ethics is anything in this world is good unless God says otherwise. The taboo approach to life is things are evil unless we have permission to use them by God. It makes all the difference in the world. By the way, fundamentalists, though they're not as bad as their theory would make them out to be, in practice they come closer to what we do, but fundamentalists often talk like they have that pagan approach to ethics. The things are bad unless the Bible says it's all right to do them. We wouldn't want to be worldly or do what other people do. But our approach is, no, everything in the world is good. And it's to be, as long as it's consecrated by prayer and the Word of God, according to 1 Timothy 4, it's, um, it's to be used. I, I mean, unless it is not consecrated by prayer and the Word of God, then it is to be used and enjoyed because God made all things good. Well, we can go on and on about the doctrine of creation. Let me just use that as a summary of some of the important implications of it for us. Now, Christ has already been called the builder of God's house in particular. This now tells us that the one who builds all things is God. What logical implication would you draw from that, uh, Doug? That Christ is God. That's right. He's the creator. Okay, now verses 5 and 6. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken. But Christ as a son over his house, whose house are we, if we hold fast our boldness and the glorying of our hope from to the end. The figure of speech of a house is probably very significant here for the writer because the Qumran sect of Jews had used that word house as a way of speaking of the elect who withdrew from the ungodliness of the nation of Israel. That is, the Qumran Dead Sea community, remember, pulled out of the mainstream of Judaism. They were a separatist holiness group. They went out into the desert to separate from the ungodliness of mainline Judaism, even of Pharisaical Judaism. I mean, this gives you some idea of how rigorous they were in their understanding of, uh, of uh, holiness of life. And they called the elect who went out into the desert God's house. The author of Hebrews did not want his readers to have false notions about membership in the household of God. So he stresses here that uh, we are God's house. Two main points of comparison between Christ and Moses are drawn out. Do you see what they are? I'm going to ask you to answer my question. What two lines of comparison do you see? between Christ and Moses or contrast. One is this, one is that. The one should be obvious. The second I may have to help you with. Jim, what do you think? Um, Moses has less glory than Christ. Christ has more glory than Moses. That's true, but why? 
Because Moses is what? Okay, that's what we've seen so far. But in verse 5, how was Moses? Yes. And Jesus was? No, no. The son. That's right. Notice that. Servant and son. Jesus is the builder of the house. Now the author changes. Jesus is the son within the house. Now, no one should have difficulty understanding that. Isn't it obvious to you that the son in the house has more glory than the servant in the house? But it's more. Because Moses is servant. What's the preposition? He is servant what toward the house? No, not for. In. Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is a son, what's it say? Over the house. And those are the two lines of comparison. Moses is in the house. Jesus is over the house. Moses is only a servant. Jesus is the son. And uh, let's turn to chapter 1, verse 2. There, the author has already indicated Jesus is the Son, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us by his Son, whom the appointed heir of all things. Then turn ahead to chapter 10, verse 21, where the notion of being over the house of God is stressed, and having a great priest having a great priest over the house of God. Both of these are uh, important theological strands in Hebrews. Christ is the supreme head of the church. He's greater than Moses, who was only a servant, because Christ is the very son within the household of God. But actually, he's the son over the household of God. He is the head of the house. He is the Lord of the house. And then, I want you to focus on this expression about Moses in verse 5. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken. Moses' function is described as testifying to things that were coming later. Moses was not a witness to himself. Moses was a witness to the coming realities of the gospel in which Christ is set forth. In Deuteronomy 18, which we don't have time to look at right now, uh, but if you want to look it up, verse 15 and following, Moses is described as a prophet who is the prototype of the great prophet that God will raise up in the later days. Moses is a prophet looking ahead to the great prophet who would come. And we need to understand that the dispensation that was introduced by Moses was not a dispensation that stood on its own, therefore. The Mosaic dispensation was always in anticipation of the day of Christ. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 1. It's just one example of how we could prove that. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. The law was never the substance. The Mosaic dispensation was never God's ultimate intention. It did not stand on its own. 
but rather it looks ahead as a shadow of the good things to come, a foreshadow. Now, what school of theology does this stand in diametric opposition to? We've already hit them before, dispensationalism. Because the dispensationalist says, what God introduced at the time of Moses was an earthly future for Israel which stands on its own. And therefore, whatever happens later in the New Testament church cannot distract from God's intentions for earthly Israel, which are geopolitical, which must be fulfilled in this world. And yet the author of Hebrews says Moses testified of things to come. Moses never did present a regime or a dispensation that had its own integrity. It was always a foreshadow of the days of Jesus Christ. Indeed, a foreshadow of a more glorious dispensation that would come of Christ. Turn to John 5, verse 46. John 5, verse 46. Uh, Scott, can I get you to read that for me? For he had yet to leave Moses, and he had to leave me, for he wanted him. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. Because what did Moses do? He wrote of me. What a clear and categorical statement. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. He did not write about a future history for Israel. He did not write about a regime that had, as I said, as its own integrity or self-sufficiency. He wrote of me, of my dispensation. Then Acts 10.43 tells us, To him, that is to Christ, bear all the prophets witness, that through his name everyone that believes on him shall receive remission of sins. All the prophets bear witness to Jesus Christ. Okay, so verse 5 tells us in Hebrews 3 that Moses was faithful, however, he's faithful as servant within the house. And he, did, and he was faithful as a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken in the gospel. But Christ, on the other hand, Christ is faithful as a son over his house. And then the author says, Whose house are we? Not the Qumran theft, but we are the house of God. We are the true elect. We are the ones that God has called out of the world to be his own. But the author says this is conditional. We are his house if what? If we hold fast our boldness and the glorying of our hope firm unto the end. We constitute the house of Christ only if we hold fast and boldly to the gospel, he says, firm to the end. What you see here is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Notice this is not the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. What's the difference, Joe? What's the difference between preservation and perseverance? No, no. Yeah, like eternal security. Jim, are you going to... Oh, the strawberry preserves. Yeah. And just stays in the jar. And of course, the green one is active and continues to run away. Yeah, good example. The difference between a strawberry and an athlete. Athletes persevere to the end. Strawberries are preserved. 
Okay, and the Bible teaches us God preserves us, that that is the doctrine that's of comfort to us. But more usually, and by the way, the distinctive of Calvinism is not once saved, always saved. The distinctive of Calvinism is the saints persevere to the end. They're like athletes. And this is what this verse tells us. We are God's house. We are the house of Christ only if we persevere. Notice John 8:31. Jesus says, You are my disciples if you continue in my word. If you abide in my word, if you stay there, then you're my disciples. Obedience to the terms of the covenant brings blessing. But apostasy and unfaithfulness to God's covenant will be duly judged. Uh, this may surprise you. Some of you have heard me say it before, and so maybe it won't surprise you, but the doctrine of once saved, always saved can be a soul-damning doctrine if it's not understood biblically. And the reason I have to say that is because I guess the vast majority of times I've heard it used, it's not being used biblically. Once saved, always saved is not somehow a guarantee that God's going to send polluted people to heaven. It can be a soul-damning doctrine because it leads to what the Puritans called carnal security. A security in the flesh. A security in outward, earthly, temporal things that does not actually give us eternal rest. Because God is not unconditionally beholden to any human person. You need to understand that God is not unconditionally committed to anyone. Someone thinks, well, I went down the aisle, I signed a decision card, I joined the church, my, my parents are Christians, I'm in America, I mean, on and on and on. Thinks, therefore, God can't reject me. You're wrong. God can reject me. Because he doesn't have any unconditional promises to anyone. All of God's promises are conditioned upon what? Perseverance to the end. If our profession of faith is insincere, there are going to be dire consequences. And that's why the Bible exhorts us all continually to examine ourselves to be assured that we are indeed Christians. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Paul says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. The church as a corporate body, by the way, must likewise examine its profession and conduct throughout the book of Revelation, well, I mean, throughout chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation, the church is warned that Christ will remove its candlestick, that Christ will come and make war against it, that Christ will punish the church and cast its apostates and its uh, undisciplined members into torment if it does not repent. So both as individuals and as a corporate body, we must constantly examine ourselves, persevere to the end. Now it's clear from the fact that the author has to make that kind of uh, admonition or warning to his readers, it's clear that um, they were facing a weakening of their confidence. Their earlier pride in the hope of the gospel message was diminishing. And that's why it says in verse 6, we are his house, if we hold fast our boldness, and I love this expression, the glorying of our hope, firm unto the end. Did you notice that it's appropriate to have a boasting in the gospel? We should boast of the gospel hope. 
We should do so firm to the end. We should maintain. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? You may not have been proud of yourself. In fact, if you were, you probably weren't genuinely a Christian. But you weren't, you weren't proud of yourself, but you were very proud and probably jealous for the truth of the gospel. Um, it was a real something that bothered you, it hurt you, when people suggested God was not true or God didn't exist or the Bible wasn't the word of God. We were proud of the gospel. The author says you ought to continue in it. Continue, what's this expression? To hold fast your boldness and the glorying of your hope, the boasting of your hope, firm unto the end. In Romans 5, 2, it's considered a mark of a true believer that he rejoices in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Okay, verses 7 through 11 now. Wherefore, since we are called to perseverance, wherefore, even as the Holy Spirit says, as the Holy Spirit says, is an expression meant to reinforce the seriousness of the matter before them. You find the same kind of expression in Hebrews 10, 15, if you want to look over there briefly. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after he hath said, and then a quotation from the Old Testament is given. When the Old Testament is quoted, the author of Hebrews considers it the Holy Spirit speaking. What doctrine, crucial to Christian theology, does this reinforce? The doctrine of biblical... Yes, sir? Well, inerrancy, but first of all, inspiration, right. That when the Bible speaks, it's God speaking, in particular, it's the Holy Spirit. Um, so clearly the author understood the Holy Spirit to be the primary author of the scriptures. And for this reason, no scripture can be a mere dead letter from a bygone era. If God spoke it, if the Holy Spirit spoke it, then it must communicate the word of the living God for every age. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 doesn't tell us the Bible is God-breathed or inspired, and that's it. It says it's God-breathed, therefore it's profitable for, what, doctrine and reproof and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. God doesn't give a dead letter. God gives a letter that is beneficial and helps us. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit saith, and then a lengthy appeal is made to the 95th Psalm. The appeal for perseverance leads our author into an extended allusion to Psalm 95 so that he can warn his readers against repeating the folly of Israel in the wilderness a disobedience which brought the judgment of God. Israel's experience in the wilderness is a leading biblical example of the perverseness of ingratitude and faithlessness toward God. Look at Psalm 7840 just to uh, reinforce that observation. Psalm 78 verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and breathed him in the desert. Wilderness and desert. You see, a symbol of rebelling against God and grieving him. 
the leading biblical example of it, over and over and over again, the people grumbled and rebelled against God. And they did so in the wilderness as though God were their opponent instead of their gracious deliverer. I'm ashamed to read it. Of course, I'm ashamed of my own life when I see that's a pattern for me too. But I read that and I think, how can they make this mistake again? They keep treating God like he's out to get them. They treat God like he's stingy. They treat God like he's an opponent or an enemy, when in fact he's the one who raised up Moses. He's the one who delivered them through the plagues of Egypt. He's the one who brought them out of, you know, in, a, in a mighty act of power in the Exodus. He's the one who delivered them through the Red Sea. He's the one who gave them daily manna. He's the one who gave them water from the rock. He's the one who turned their bitter water sweet. He's the one who gave them meat every night. He's the one who led them by the pillar of fire and cloud. And you look at all this, and yet every single time some minor irritation or obstacle came up, the people just fell apart. Moses, you brought us out here to die. You hate us. This is an ambush. It's a trick. God doesn't love us. Is he really among us or not? And so in the wilderness, God's people demonstrated their grumbling rebellion against him. Having been delivered from Egypt, they were destroyed for their unbelief. Jude, the fifth verse. Paul, would you read that for me? Jude 5. And while she's looking that up, uh, David, would you be so good as to look up Exodus 17, 1 to 7? Exodus 17, 1 to 7. Okay, Jude 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, said the Lord, after saving the people out of the land, we destroyed those who did not believe. There you have the summary. After delivering them out of Egypt, he had to destroy them for their unbelief. Now, this is terribly sad. And what the author of Hebrews does then, when he wants to call us to perseverance, he first of all sees us as in a similar situation. We are in the wilderness. We are not in the promised land. We have not arrived in heaven. The kingdom of God has not been consummated. We are a wilderness church. We are not a promised land church. And since we are like the Old Testament Jews in the wilderness, we need to be called to perseverance, to press into God's rest and not be like they were, faithless and grumbling and rebelling against God. Now, to make that point, the author goes to Psalm 95, but before you can understand Psalm 95, you need to realize that Psalm 95 focuses upon a particular disgraceful incident that took place in the wilderness wanderings at the area of Rephidim. And that story is recorded for us in Exodus 17, 1 to 7. David? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us 
the Old Testament exactly correctly. Of course, he applies it exactly correctly. What he says is, God is speaking to this generation, not that generation. Okay, those are some of the things you can see. But let me go through the quotation and make some applications. Verse 7, the psalmist points out that Israel squandered its day of opportunity in the wilderness. Today, if you shall hear his voice, pardon not your heart. Don't lose your opportunity. By disbelief and rebellion, you see, they provoke God to prohibit their entrance to the promised land. God gave them a day of opportunity. They did not seize upon it. They rebelled, and for that reason they lost out. Verse 8 explains how they lost out. They hardened their own hearts. And because they hardened their hearts, Moses called the place, as David has read for us, Masa and Meribah. These are terrible words in Hebrew. Masa means testing. means um, testiness of testing, too. Uh, Meribah means embitterment. And so, as it says here, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, like as in the day of testing or trial in the wilderness. The reflection is upon the two Hebrew words that were used to describe Rephidim. That one incident became symptomatic of the rebellious unbelief that prevented the Israelites from moving forward in confidence regarding the promise and the power of God. What does Exodus 17 say? They ask, is God among us or not? What had God promised? What was the central promise of the covenant? I will go with you. I will be with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And they said, probably not true. God said it. He doesn't live up to it. They questioned God's presence and his promise. And so they didn't move ahead in faith. Verse 9, Israel put God to the test. Wherefore your fathers tried me and proved me. They put God to the test, and there's so many things that can be said about that in this series. In fact, I want to do this in our church once we've done the Proverbs. I've decided I want to trace how Exodus 17 is used throughout the Bible. But, you see, when they tested God, they were engaging in the very essence of sin, weren't they? Sin pr promotes man above God and says, God, prove yourself to me. I'm going to put you to the test. Deuteronomy 6, therefore, the law of God says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, you know that verse, probably not from Deuteronomy 6, though. You know it from Matthew, the fourth chapter. Because Jesus, in the wilderness, provoked by Satan, says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus kept God's law and refused to test the Lord. He would not exalt himself above the word of God. The word of God settled it for him. But here in, he in Hebrews 3, according to Psalm 95, we see the Israelites tried God. They proved him. Another aspect of this is they didn't realize God was testing them. They thought they were testing God. God was actually testing their faith and their confidence and their um, willingness to follow him. The author reminds us though, that throughout the wilderness wanderings, they saw his works of power. God says, for 40 years they saw my work. Still, they could not press into the promised land. Verse 10, Wherefore I was displeased with this, the author of Psalms is that, therefore I was displeased with this generation and said they always err in their heart and they did not know my ways. They did not come to know the ways of God. 
and yet they saw them with their eyes. But a beautiful illustration of seeing the truth but not perceiving it. God did all these mighty works, but they did not have parts of belief by which to perceive that God was teaching them. Another way of saying it is that they saw the truth but suppressed it in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. God made it so... I mean, has there ever been a group of people that had um, uh, more outward empirical evidence of God's presence and power than all the miracles? They, I mean, every day they saw a miracle. Quail don't naturally go into the wilderness. They're smart. They stick around water in cooler places. But every evening, God brought in a flock of quail for them to eat. Day by day, he delivered them. And yet they didn't see his ways. They didn't learn their lessons. And so, God says, they erred in their hearts. And this brought God to be displeased with them. And his condemnation was not simply for one event, I want you to notice, but for a general characteristic which came to expression there. And that's why God says, they do always err. That's the kind of people they are. Verse 11, Above all, they forfeited the promise of entering into God's rest, a rest which lay ahead for them as God's people. And what is this? Why is it that entering the promised land is called entering God's rest? <clears throat> well, because they rest from their wanderings, finally. God's taking them across the desert. He brings them into the land and finally... They plunk down, they can settle in, they have homes, they can rest in God's promised provision. Numbers 14, verses 22 and 23, which we don't take the time to read right now, um, that's the way the promised land is um, described. It's a place where Israel would rest. However, God's rest is something for which the promised land of Palestine was merely the token and the pointer. See, we really miss the story if we think that by Israel getting to Palestine, that's all God had in mind. Palestine was just part for whole. It was just the little for the bigger picture that God wanted us to find. It was a pointer to the true rest of God, a reality that lay beyond the promised land, the reality of God's eternal rest in heaven. In Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, God speaks of the Sabbath as his rest. The Sabbath is his rest. Those who are in a right fellowship with God on the Sabbath rest in him. They enter into God's day of rest. Now God turns that image and applies it to the promised land. And it says, those who are moving across the wilderness to move into the promised land will enter into my rest. What, what he intended for man from the very beginning of the creation, what the Sabbath was all about, that's what the promised land comes to symbolize. And when we get to chapter 4, you're beginning to wonder when we're going to get to chapter 4, when we get to chapter 4, the author explicitly makes the promised land and a symbol of the Sabbath what is that is yet to come uh, for us. But let me continue here in chapter 3. Verse 12 now. Having gone through this lengthy quotation, one of the longest in the New Testament, by the way, an Old Testament passage, the author says, Take heed, brothers, lest aptly there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. You see, the author is not simply recounting a past occurrence 
as he looks at Psalm 95 in the past occurrence at Exodus 17, he sees it as having current ethical relevance right now. Indeed, the author thinks that these things were written apparently for our day and age. That's why he changes that generation to the expression, this generation. And what strikes me as uh, fascinating about that is that in 1 Corinthians 10, which I want you to turn to, keep your finger in Hebrew, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 and 11, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, is talking about the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. He speaks specifically of, of Rephidim in verse 4, how um, they all drank the same spiritual drink and drank of a spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. He goes on to mention other things, but it's the wilderness wanderings Paul's talking about. Verse 6 says, Now these things were our examples to the intent we shouldn't watch after evil things. Paul says these things were written for us. And in verse 11, now these things happened unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Paul, just like the author of Hebrews says, you read the Old Testament, don't you buy this dispensational nonsense about that being something that happened way back when, or a promise is something that will happen way in the future sometimes, because those things were written for this day and age. They were written for our admonition. God specifically... So the author of Hebrews admonishes his readers uh, sternly, to be sure, but yet as brothers. He says it would be a dangerous and evil thing if an unbelieving heart were to arise in their midst. They need to understand what kind of heart he's talking about. Take heed, brethren, lest aptly there shall be in any one of you an evil part of unbelief and falling away from the living God. This may surprise you. So listen closely, sports fans. This is not a heart that has not come to belief. This is not a heart that has not yet come to belief, but a heart which, in an evil way, deliberately turns away from belief to unbelief. That is, as he says, it falls away from the living God. This is a heart guilty of willful apostasy. This is a heart that engages in deliberate desertion from God. The very opposite of a heart that is described in chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. A true heart that has full assurance of faith is the opposite of this evil heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God, does not draw nigh with confidence, does not come close to God with confidence, but rather falls away from God. An evil heart of unbelief is used as an expression for those who apostatize from the faith. You see, it's much more wicked to turn your back upon belief having once professed it and knowing something of its reality than to never come to belief in the first place. Look at 2 Peter 2, verses 15, 20, and 21. 2 Peter 2, 
This is 15, 20, and 21. There, Peter says, forsaking the right way, they went astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the hire of wrongdoing. They forsook the right way. Then verse 20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the last state is become worse with them than the first. For it were better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than have them after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now, at this point, all I can tell you is as we study the book of Hebrews, you Calvinists are going to have to kind of hold on here. There's nothing contrary to Calvinism in what I'm saying. There's nothing contrary to Calvinism in the book of Hebrews. I don't believe that we have to give up our notion of eternal security and God's predestinating power and so forth. But there is something more to the biblical witness than just that. And that has to do with man's responsibility. And the Bible does teach that there are those who can, short of salvation, that's the difference between me and an Arminian, there are those who, short of salvation, come to a kind of belief in God, which is not true and lasting, it does not involve a changed heart, but they come to a belief which has some outward manifestation, which involves some knowledge of the way of righteousness, and yet they turn away from it. Now some would say that means the people who are born again can then go back into spiritual death, which I think is impossible, contrary to the sovereignty of God and so forth. But though they are wrong in their understanding of what this person was and then what that person became, I would say that person never was truly a, a Christian, we must take in a deadly serious way this exhortation that you not profess belief, show a certain knowledge of righteousness, and then turn back from it. You must persevere to the end if you intend to be saved. And then... Um, Emphasis is placed by the author of Hebrew in verse 12 upon the one they fall away from being the living God. Uh, oh, I wish we had time to read all these passages. For your notes, you might want to put down these passages that speak of Jehovah as the living God. Deuteronomy 5, 26. Joshua 3, 10. 1 Samuel 17, 26. Psalm 84.2. Then there are three longer passages that are especially important. I'm going to read one of these anyway. Psalm 115, verses 3 to 8. Isaiah 46, verses 6 and 7. And Jeremiah 10, verses 5 to 10. I love that Jeremiah one. God says, what do you think I am, a scarecrow in a cucumber patch? The gods of the heathens are like that. They can't do anything. They don't see anything. They don't move. They don't talk. They don't hear or think. They don't do anything. But let's turn to the one um, that perhaps is best known to you. Psalm 115, verses 3 to 8. Psalm 115, verses 3 to 8. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. 
Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them shall be like unto them. Yea, every one that trusteth in them. The gods of the heathens are not living gods. They don't smell. They don't see. They don't hear. They don't talk. They don't walk. They don't do anything. What the author says is they are dead. And then this terrible threat is made. And those who make them will be like unto them. Namely, lifeless. Dead. You worship a God like that and God will strike you dead. But we have to be careful, according to the author of Hebrews. Take heed, brothers, lest aptly there shall be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. The essence of idolatry, you must remember, is not images of wood and stone. The essence of idolatry is turning away from the truth of God for a lie. A lie that follows man's imagination. You know what the second commandment forbids? The making of an image of God. And those who don't follow the Lord God, the living and true God revealed in the Bible, are following their images, their imaginations. As Paul says in Romans 1, verse 25, idolatry is turning away from the Creator to the creature. Whether you have wooden stone idols is not the important point. The important thing is that you've made an image for yourself of what God is, and you've turned to the creature and away from the Creator. The author of Hebrews calls on those who are in the Christian church to be careful that it's true of them. See, I don't think we think in those terms. The book of Hebrews needs to be a slap in our face to wake us up. Because we tend to think, if you're in the church, well, then, of course, idolatry and image-making, that's no problem for you. You're saved, right? That's the realm everyone's going to heaven is in the church. Author of Jesus says, no. Brothers, hold fast your confidence firm to the end. Brothers, press into the promised land. Brothers, make sure that you don't have an evil heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God by your idolatrous ideas and your own images and I and your imaginations in terms of uh, theological conclusions you come to. In verse 13 he says, But exhort one another day by day, so long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Mutual exhortation is an important tool for resisting apostasy. The author says, if we're going to resist that evil part of unbelief, we need to exhort each other. Everyone needs to exhort his fellow believer. In Romans 12, 5, we see the basis for this corporate concern. We're all part of the body of Christ. And if we're part of the body of Christ, every part of the body has an interest in the other part of the body. And so moral encouragement against the threat of apostasy is not something confined to the leaders of the Christian community. We mustn't think, contrary to the Reformation emphasis, 
that only elders or only pastors and ministers, only the ordained officers of the church exhort us. But this points out that we're all to exhort one another continually. Notice that it's to be constant, not just occasional. Every day, he says, or day by day. And it should continue throughout the Christian dispensation, as long as it's called today. Now, what does the word today mean in Psalm 95? The day of God's grace, the day of God's opportunity, the day in which God is working with us and calling us to our heavenly home. As long as it's called today, as long as it's this dispensation, we must continually, day by day, every one of us, exhort each other against apostasy. But remember, God's forbearance is not forever. Israel learned that. He forbore with them, if that's the verb. God was forbearing with them for 40 years, but that was it. And they died in the wilderness. We need to remember that our today, our day of opportunity and grace, will end as well. It will end with the day of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. People think God will be patient forever. He won't. The end of this age is coming. And when it does, fiery judgment is all that's left for this world. And so, verse 13 tells us, Exhort one another day by day, so long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The concern of the individual for the corporate body, which we've just seen, every one of you should be concerned for the whole body, is now balanced by the concern of the corporate body for the individual. Notice that, how it turns it around at the end of the verse. Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The whole body should be a mutually exhorting body so that no individual will fall away. And one last remark and then we'll stop for tonight. You notice that the author has a particular view of sin here. Sin first deceives us and then hardens us as its victim. Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives and then hardens. And I think it's obvious, it should be obvious to you, that the background to this notion is Genesis 3. Eve was deceived and then hardened in a rebellion. Satan having deceived her mind, Eve now deliberately turns away from God. And the result was a forfeiting of what? the promised land. Adam and Eve had to leave the garden of God's rest, their promised land, if you will. They were expelled from the garden. And the author looks at Israel in the wilderness and says they couldn't enter the promised land of God's rest because of the sin that deceived and hardened it. And likewise, we will not press into heaven if we let sin harden, or deceive and harden us as well. Well, I have hope to get through the end of this chapter. There's just too much good stuff there. We'll continue with chapter 3 next time, and maybe we'll get into chapter 4. When we do get into chapter 4, uh, we're going to take time to look at the eschatology of the book of Hebrews to understand uh, the basis for which the author speaks of the Sabbath. And if any of you either yourselves or have friends that have questions about the continuation of the Christian Sabbath in this dispensation, 
Make sure you don't miss that Bible study. It'll begin next time. Probably uh, two Bible studies from tonight will get into the heart of that. Because Hebrews 4 is one of the strongest uh, arguments in all the Bible for the idea that there's a continuing Sabbath rest for the people of God. The argument being, in brief, that since we have not entered into the promised rest of God yet, that is still eschatologically future. So today we continue to observe as a token the weekly Sabbath as a way of looking ahead to what God will do in the future for us. Okay, do you have any questions you would like to ask before we stop tonight? I was wondering about that um, business about the, the heart that professed belief and then fell back into evil ways. Well, it all depends on what you mean by the word backsliding. If you mean by backsliding, coming to a place of true saving faith, but then losing that salvation, backsliding into the world, no, it doesn't, because the Bible teaches that never happens. But if you mean by backsliding a Christian who attains a certain level of sanctification and knowledge, and then goes through a long period of dryness and indifference and backslides from the zeal that he or she once knew, then that isn't what this is talking about, because this is talking about somebody who's totally lost, has fallen away from the living God. The natural question arises, and it's only good from a pastoral standpoint that it be answered, is what should you do about yourself or more about loved ones or friends that you see backslide? How should you interpret that? The Bible says you should not look well upon that. You should worry about that. Not because God's sovereignty is being challenged. Once saved, always saved is going down the tubes. But because what this may suggest is they were never saved in the first place. And the parable we keep coming back to, of course, is the parable of the seed, right? Jesus says that, you know, the seed is cast out there. Some comes up. For a short time, it looks like all the rest, but there's no root to it. There's no deep ground under it, and it dies out. That's not true seed, then, or it's not true harvest. It's not wheat. It only appears for a while to be. And when you look at your life, and you look at the lives of others who have started out very zealous for the Lord, making progress, and then it just seems to peter out, then we should ask, is this part of that seed that was sown and just grows up for a while and dies? Is it not genuinely saving faith that we have had or that our friend or our loved one has had? Perseverance is crucial. If we aren't persevering, we, if we see a period of backsliding, it may in fact be um, just backsliding, as I've just defined it, a, a period of going backwards in our faith, which is not good, it's under the condemnation of God, but it doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. It may only be that. But from outward appearances, you can't tell what it really is. From outward appearances, it could just as much be a demonstration that your heart is not right with God. Well, how do you know, Greg? Because you know, in church I grew up in, you could always go back down the aisle again. And, take, you know, if you weren't sure, or if you knew your life was not reflecting, well, you know, the fruit that it should, then you could, you could go ahead and get saved all over again. The biblical answer is, if you persevere to the end, then you can be sure. So if you're backsliding, then you want to ask yourself, 
You want to ask yourself, am I willing to continue backsliding? Do I care about this? And if it doesn't disturb you, and I've known people who say they are Christians, but it doesn't disturb them, they're not going to church anymore, or they've lost their zeal for Bible study or evangelism, what have you. If that doesn't bother you, um, they don't like it when I say this, but I usually just say, I don't think you're safe. I really don't. And I believe that you're in the most dangerous position because you want most of all to say, oh yeah, I really am. Because you've heard all the right things and you know all the cliches and you have all the answers, but your heart's not right with God. On the other hand, if you see this in yourself, and if every night when you go to bed and you pray and you say, God, why do you put up with me? I can't believe how I continue to sin and how, how I don't show the zeal and I don't study my Bible enough. We're not talking about a backslider. We're talking about a repentant sinner who grieves over sin. We should grieve over our sin. So the first thing you have to ask is, do I really grieve over this backslidden condition or this, this, this problem that I have? And then secondly, you have to ask, am I going to persevere to the end? Or am I going to let myself just completely uh, turn away from it all? Um, I can think of uh, two or three individuals, probably all of us have one or more people in mind, that um, maybe when you were growing up or through a long period of time in your uh, experience in the church, that person seemed like such a godly person, such a leader in the church so interested in things of the Lord. And now all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. The person doesn't go to church. That person may openly renounce Jesus Christ, or if he or she doesn't renounce Jesus Christ, she says, I don't care anymore. What are we to make of that? Some people have said, well, we're Calvinists, so we have to say, well, they really are saved. I'm saying, no, we're Calvinists, so we have to say they probably aren't. Because what Calvinists teach is the perseverance of the saints. If you don't persevere, you're not a saint. But remember, that doesn't mean you're saved by your good works and by your accomplishments. I don't want to end on the note that may mislead you into a works righteousness understanding. The Calvinist knows we all sin. The Calvinist knows we're, we're all imperfect. But the Calvinist says those who are truly saved have hearts that are sensitive to that and grieve over their sin and renew their efforts day by day to serve the Lord. They persevere and persevere and persevere. Even if it means forgiveness every day, we persevere. But there are some people who say, yeah, well, it doesn't bother me anymore. I don't need the Bible. I don't need the church. I don't evangelize. And uh, I just, I, I wouldn't be a good watchman on the wall if I didn't say, I think there's going to be blood. There's going to be judgment. You better watch out. Another question? If this sort of thing disturbs you, by the way, don't come to any more Bible studies because the book of Hebrews is going to get a lot heavier about this. Wait till we get to chapter 6 and chapter 10. If you think this exhortation to perseverance is rough, wait till you see what the author says in those two chapters. Those, by the way, are popular chapters used by Arminians to prove that once saved, always saved is not true. And um, I'm going to support them that it shows you better be worried about your salvation if you're not living up to things but I'm not going to buy into the idea that if you're saved, you can lose your salvation. I'm just going to say those that are described in those two chapters when they're saved. Lord, we ask that you would awaken us tonight. You would keep us from slumbering, taking for granted our sin and our indifference 
We pray, Father, that you would make us mindful that we might be backslidden and that we should examine ourselves to make sure that we are the house of Christ, that we are holding firm to our confidence and to the end. We pray that we would see ourselves as a wilderness community and that just as Israel of old had to demonstrate faith day by day, trust your promises and judgments, that we must do the same. We must not have evil hearts of unbelief that are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must not doubt your presence among us, doubt your promises, doubt your adequacy. We must be committed to you and willing to obey you because of that commitment, to trust in you and your provision day by day. We ask that the Lord Jesus Christ might become more precious to us because of our study tonight. Because we also have the assurance that since he has taken on human flesh, has become even as we are, he is a faithful high priest and can sympathize with our infirmities. We would beseech our Savior Jesus Christ tonight, knowing our struggle, each and every one of us, our, our private, perhaps even our very secret spiritual struggle, that knowing these things, he might sympathize with us, that he might comfort us tonight, that he might assure us of his forgiving grace, that he might assure us of his powerful presence, and that he might give us that measure of his spirit that is necessary to not only jolt us back into a life of fidelity and obedience, but also to give us the strength day by day to live up to our commitments, to not constantly be found as covenant virgins. We know that if these things happen, Father, you will not save us because we have done so well. We rather will give you all the praise and the glory because we know that whatever happens is good for us happens because of what you've done in us and for us. And that by your grace, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.